Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Mr. Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 10 to 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We will do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on this webinar, so I apologize in advance if we do not get to yours today. And now, with no further ado, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Hi, thank you. Uh, good evening uh, from Israel. It's been a few weeks uh, since we last did this, so there's a lot to catch up on. And uh, rather than focusing on one issue tonight, I thought I'd just go through uh, a few different issues uh, facing Israel challenges uh, over the last few weeks, or especially in the last few days, and then open it up to your questions to wherever you want to focus on. So let's start on our northern border in news, uh, I think it was eight days ago now, that really captured the international attention, the explosion in Lebanon, uh, in Beirut, uh, that had a massive, obviously, effect in Lebanon, but it also had an effect in Israel. Up until that moment, there was a lot of tension on the northern border between Israel and Hezbollah. There was a, a small raid uh, Hezbollah unit across the border, which was repelled by the Israeli army. Uh, it was ostensibly to retaliate for the Israeli army, or what Hezbollah accused the Israeli army of taking out one of their senior militants in Syria. And uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, had long uh, said that we will retaliate. Um, it's a big question mark whether that was the retaliation. They've, they've said it wasn't. They even claim that the event did not happen, uh, or at least not in the way that the Israelis were saying, that uh, no Lebanese person crossed the border and the Israelis just opened fire and saw people on the other side of the fence. Um, but there was, uh, subsequent to that, the Israeli mobilized, uh, the Israeli army mobilized on the northern border, brought in a lot of troops because they really did expect uh, in the days after that, especially leading up to Eid al-Fitr, the um, Muslim holiday, they, they did expect some sort of response. And then uh, the Beirut blast happened and uh, Hezbollah basically, um, obviously their attention was elsewhere and the country's attention is elsewhere. I believe tomorrow or Friday, Hassan Nasrallah is going to give a big speech on the anniversary of the uh, last Lebanon uh, war, Lebanon too. Uh, so I'm sure we'll hear a lot more from him then. But basically, Hezbollah, there, there are two schools of thoughts about it. Probably the most likely is Hezbollah cannot launch an attack against Israel now, at least not a concerted attack, because you know they're, they're, they're facing a lot of internal tensions. A lot of people in Lebanon blame uh, them for the blast, blame them for what was even happening before. There were demonstrations because of the economic problems. Uh, in Lebanon and Hezbollah as one of the powers in the government along with their Christian allies were certainly uh, blamed for a lot of the problems. There were regular demonstrations, Hezbollah bullies would come in and even beat up uh, some of the demonstrators. So already the popularity was low and that's perhaps one of the reasons why they were looking to start a fight with Israel. Usually when uh, there's tension against Hezbollah and Lebanon, sometimes they look to uh, relieve that by you know, sort of trying to face off against this or to show this is why we're around, this is why you need us. Um, there is that school of thought that perhaps because it's weakened, it's going to again use that excuse. Uh, but probably now there's too much focus 
for them really to use that. Um, you know, there's all talks of some sort of under, underground network and whether it was Hezbollah's, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, materials that were being used in a future attack on Israel that was actually exploded in the Beirut port. So there's a lot of, certainly a lot of questions. Hezbollah under a lot of pressure to answer these questions. So I think at this point in time, probably they're going to be more internally faced, not to say that they will ignore Israel. And perhaps if there is an opportunity, they will use it. But at the moment, they're probably too internally focused uh, to really uh, launch a concerted effort against Israel. Although they still retain, at least uh, verbally, uh, that right to what they claim retaliate for the, for the killing of their um, higher up uh, in Syria. On the southern border with Gaza, things have also been heating up. Uh, basically, over the last few days, uh, dozens, every single day, dozens of incendiary devices attached to balloons, usually balloons that look like things that kids would want to get with uh, pictures of Mickey Mouse or cartoon characters. What they do is they blow up uh, helium balloons and then attach an incendiary device to it and uh, float it across the border in the hope that some child will grab it or fall into a playground. But what it's most like, what, what it's been doing over the last few days is basically causing massive fires in the south of Israel. Um, we, we are going through a particularly arid uh, part, of the, part of the calendar. It's very hot, so anytime something like this lands, it can set off a fire, which really does cause massive, massive fires. Yesterday, there were 70 fires that, uh, that the authorities had to put out. To, today, there was only 24, but they say, because we've got a little bit better about shooting some down and and for some other reasons, but certainly this is a big worry uh, for Israel because you know it can it can certainly heat things up. People can die. You know, there's a lot of money which is lost. There's a lot of produce which is lost. Animals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Israel has responded uh, by taking out some uh, Hamas installations. Nothing too serious. Uh, it did just uh, limit uh, guards and fishermen. Uh, that's what usually they do. Is Gars and fishermen have a certain uh, limit which they can go out into the waters to fish, etc. And whenever they need to send a message, they usually limit them. So they've done that. Um, but there's a lot of focus what's going on uh, in the south at the moment. There is this idea that Hamas uh, certainly are in a bit of financial trouble. And again, we hear about Qatar with their suitcases of money uh, being brought in. Uh, some in Israel call it protection money, the fact that we allow Qatar to give Hamas in Gaza, which is basically run by Hamas, millions and millions of dollars uh, for quiet. And usually when they're causing troubles, it's usually just to make sure that Israel will allow this in. And there were reports yesterday that, again, the Mossad head uh, held meetings with Qataris or maybe interlocutors through the Qataris to basically give the green light for this protection money, for this money to come into uh, to Gaza for, for Hamas in exchange for a quieting down of the situation. There have been a few shootings across the border, even the rocket attacks a, a couple of weeks back. So that border is something that uh, always has to be look up, looked after. Speaking of which, our defense minister overnight went through a, an operation uh, for what's believed to be a slip disk. Uh, so he was out of commission for a day, but apparently in the last hour or so, he has informed the cabinet secretary that he is able to fulfill his duties, even from his uh, hospital bed where he's recovering at the moment. Um, so that's that's that situation. The political situation is the one that everybody's kind of keeping their eye on uh, because, you know, 
the, the big question is, are we going to elections? I would say we certainly are, whether we're going to elections in November, December, or early next year, you know, that, that just has to be worked out. At the moment, the two major parties, Likud and Blue and White, it's just mutual recriminations, one between the other. That there isn't a day which goes past one accuses this or that or whatever. But basically, we have now 13 days to either pass a budget, in which if the budget is not passed, the, the national annual budget, if it's not passed, immediately we go towards elections. Now, there is a, a, a way to, uh, to sort of stop that, and that is there's a small sort of satellite party of blue and white, Benny Gantz's party called Dero Heretz, which is Speaker Hauser and U.S. Hendel, uh, who basically put up a law which uh, puts off having to pass the budget by 100 days. Uh, this was put up before the Knesset for the first reading today. It passed. And so people were sort of breathing in a little bit, a sigh of relief. But the fact remains that Likud have said that we will not allow it to pass the second or third readings unless uh, we get something uh, from blue and white in return. The big argument ostensibly above the sort of, uh, you know, uh, openly is about the budget. We've talked about this in the past. Blue and white want to maintain what was agreed in the coalition agreement to have a two-year budget, um, or I should say one year and three months, because any budget that's passed now is just till the end of the year. They could just want to have a budget now. Now, there, is, there are economic arguments for both. Probably most economists would uh, side with blue and white, and they do. Uh, but what's going on far beyond that is the Likud is not just seeking uh, or flexing its muscles about the budget. It's probably that's a largely an excuse. What they want is to ensure that under any deal, uh, and remarkably, the coalition agreement is being opened up again, months after it was signed, sealed, and delivered. Um, and basically, they could want more assurances that when uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, if uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu hands over his office to Betty Gantz, who's the ultimate Prime Minister next year, uh, if the Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court uh, disallows Netanyahu to hold the position of alternate prime minister and maybe another minister because someone, according to Israeli law, someone who is under such serious indictments cannot uh, serve as minister. Prime minister, there was a ruling which says he's allowed to, uh, but the moment that he no longer becomes the prime minister, there is a worry that the Supreme Court will uh, disbar him from holding any other office. Uh, so they want to open that back up and they want to open it other few, but basically mostly to do with uh, Netanyahu's legal woes. Um, but trying to frame it as, a, as an economic issue, as something to do with the coronavirus, and there's a need to push forward with these things. But the fact is, for a government that was supposed to focus just on coronavirus and its attendant economic issues, they've been certainly uh, focused on so many other different things. And the coronavirus certainly came back to Israel in the second wave, although things have stabilized a little bit and even are starting to go down. Um, but the big question is, is what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks? Uh, tomorrow there is a discussion, or there was a discussion today and it will carry on tomorrow, about whether Israelis will now be able to travel for the first time abroad and maybe even some uh, foreigners allowed into Israel, because up until this point only Israelis have been allowed into Israel with certain exceptions. But tomorrow they're going to release um, a list of countries, green countries, uh, which uh, you'll be able to travel to and from without uh, having to isolate for 14 days when you return. Um, there's also, you know, in, in three weeks, we'll, our kids 
will be back in school, whether that's going to happen or not. Uh, that's a big question, uh, question mark, because the numbers are still pretty high. <clears throat> there is talk of lockdown, another lockdown, but at the moment, the coronavirus coordinator, the coronavirus SAR, uh, Rani Gamsu is someone who's very much against uh, lockdowns, is trying to prevent it. There's a lot of pressure on him uh, from within the government to call for a lockdown, but at the moment he is resisting it. He said this is the last tool that we should use, and they're trying to do all sorts of things to try and prevent another lockdown. His claim is that if there's another lockdown, another half a million Israelis will become unemployed, and obviously that is a massive uh, problem for the economy to try and get people back into work rather than put more people out of work. So it's certainly something uh, that uh, we'll be watching over the coming days. And with that, I'm happy to open up for questions. All right, well, first off, welcome back. <laughs> Our viewers certainly missed you. Um, so the first one is, are the demonstrations and outrage in Beirut spreading to the rest of Lebanon? And how is Hezbollah weathering the storm? I know you talked about the popularity going down, but aside from that, well, I mean, my, my personal belief, again, I'm not a security expert, I'm not a, an expert in Lebanon, but I think uh, Hezbollah will weather it just because they do have, you know, the way Lebanese politics works is there's four different communities and they each have representation. The Shia community has, which is obviously largely, not totally, largely uh, loyal to Hezbollah and some of its satellite uh, organizations. Um, so there's a, there's a very strong power base there. And Iran is obviously playing a role here. And Hezbollah, as many terrorist organizations do these days, they certainly have a social welfare part to what they do, as well as a political and a military uh, arm. They have a social welfare. And there are many, many Lebanese people who are dependent on uh, Hezbollah. They have their own hospitals. They have their own sort of social welfare system, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a little bit too um, ground in uh, for it to really be threatened. Certainly there is a lot of anger and it probably has to take a step backwards and, and, and talk the right language at this point, but it's still the power broker uh, in Lebanon. Things could change, but again, it's, it's a country which is very split ethnically, religiously, um, and Hezbollah is, you know, it, it, it sees to a population which is just growing, the Shiite population whereas other communities, like the Christian community and the Jewish community, is largely shrinking. So I don't see Hezbollah as being completely threatened, but there's certainly a lot more anger on the streets around Lebanon. Uh, you can see that with the demonstrations, even before the blast of the demonstrations, where Hezbollah was certainly a target for the demonstrators. Now it's been heightened. We did see an image of Hassan Nasrallah with a noose around his neck, uh, an effigy, um, just shows the sort of uh, the, the anger um, but again, they still have a very, very strong base, and I don't think they're about to lose that anytime soon. Thank you. So for the balloons coming in, one is um, where is the helium coming from if the, uh, the border is sealed pretty well and <clears throat> all this stuff is getting checked? And also, um, is there any sort of technical or military solution? Well, I don't know exactly how they're getting the helium. I don't know how you create helium. Maybe there's a way you can create it locally. Um, there was a lot of, there's been a lot of discussions over the uh, years about dual use uh, items. Uh, perhaps helium is one of them. Perhaps it can be used for many other different things, maybe medical and otherwise. 
which Israel will not stop. I, I, I just don't know about enough about the compound itself to speculate on that. As far as uh, uh, Israel's response, there is a new system, uh, a laser system, which can shoot it down. But you can imagine, first of all, it's quite a long border with, uh, with Gaza. So it'd be very, very difficult to have this laser system all the way through. And again, a laser system to take down a few basic balloons with some incendiary device. Again, it's, it's something which Israel has to deal with, but you can imagine the cost and the enormity uh, of, of the system uh, to deal with something relatively basic. And the, the question is, if we stop the balloons, what's the next thing? You know, the, the Hamas are pretty innovative. They come up with new responses and they play on the fact that we are a, you know, a very high-tech nation. We come up with innovations and inventions, but these are cost of millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even billions in the, in the case of uh, Iron Dome. And Hamas, its rockets, its balloons, et cetera, et cetera, cost, I mean, how much does it cost for a couple of balloons, a bit of helium and an incendiary device? Probably a few tens of dollars. So it's, it's a very, very difficult uh, threat to face. Um, it's not the most lethal threat. I don't think there's been anyone, uh, anyone who has died from these balloons, although I think there have been some children who, have, who were injured earlier on. Now today, most children in the border area, whether it's Sterot or other towns in Kibbutzim there, have been taught not to touch uh, balloons. In fact, you know, even, even in other parts of the country, because they do, if the wind is right, they can actually float quite far. Uh, kids around the country now know if you see balloons in the air, you don't, uh, you don't touch them. Um, so it, it is a threat and it's something that Israel has to deal with, but as you can imagine, it's a very, very difficult uh, challenge to deal with because of its low-tech nature. Thank you for that. Um, so Biden recently uh, said his choice for vice president, and what is the reaction from Israel on Harris? Well, she's, she's relatively well-known uh, in Israel, and I think from an Israeli point of view, again, I'm not going to talk about domestic politics or get it weighed into the whole elections in America, but from an Israel point of view, she is a known quantity. She is someone who's seen as a, a centrist uh, on the democratic side, someone who uh, has you know, come out against BDS, someone who uh, sees the Israel-US relationship importantly. Again, not to say everything is perfect and not to say that you know, nothing that she's ever done is something to be concerned about. But certainly when we look at the possible picks and some of those on the far left of the Democratic Party who are fans of BDS or at least won't condemn it and have even called for aid to Israel to be sort of contingent on Israel's behavior, certainly uh, Kamala Harris is someone that, uh, let's just say, you know, is, is, is relatively good pick from our point of view. That's good to know. Thank you. Um, along those lines, I know that we've already talked about this, for, but for our viewers just joining in, uh, should Biden win in November and Netanyahu remain in power, what type of relationship can be expected between the two leaders? Well, they know each other. Biden has been around and has been coming to Israel and being involved in issues, whether it's in the Senate or, or whatever, for many, many years. So there's nothing unknown there. Um, I think there's an expectation. It won't be a return to the Obama era distance between the countries, uh, but it certainly won't be as close as it has been under President Trump. Um, I, 
I'm not sure there'll be any great bold moves. Will they return the embassy to Tel Aviv? I think it's unlikely now that it's in Jerusalem. Would he have moved it to Jerusalem, uh, a potential President Biden? No. But once it's there, I think um, it may well be a fait accompli. Uh, there certainly won't be that friendliness, uh, that closeness that has characterized the Trump administration, the Netanyahu administration. Um, but it certainly won't be a, something like a Bernie Sanders or, or something like that. Um, so I think, you know, we'll, we'll sort of, there'll be a certain reset, but it certainly won't be, the, 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 the dial won't be moved back to the Obama era or something further than that. Um, and Netanyahu and Biden know each other. And, you know, there, there were certainly rocky moments in the relationship when he was vice president to President Obama. Um, but I, I think they know each other well enough. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden, is a I believe he is a friend of Israel. Again, is he as friendly as, as we may like? Uh, that's a, certainly a question. But I think he's a friend of Israel. And I don't think that, you know, it will be an unknown uh, sort of force uh, for us here in Israel. Thank you. So with the coronavirus, how many Israeli jobs have disappeared forever? Do you think it will take long to reintegrate these workers? Well, no jobs have ever gone forever. Uh, but there was a report put out recently that said it could well be into 2022 before we get back to our single digit unemployment, um, or at least uh, maybe not single, even to a pre-coronavirus level. I think uh, if I'm not much mistaken, uh, unemployment was around 4% before coronavirus. Uh, and it's up to 20%. So to get back to 4%, we're talking about it could be a year and a half, two years. And that may be true, by the way, of other countries. Um, but it all depends how many more waves there are, how, many, how much lockdown, restrictions, et cetera, there are. That's all dependent. Obviously, they say, you know, I, I read various reports which uh, talked about the constriction of our GDP. And again, everything is dependent on how many more waves there are when a vaccine or something that will constrictor, uh, the coronavirus will be ready. Um, but the worst case scenario is that unemployment will just grow. Uh, as I said before, the new coronavirus coord national coordinator, Ronnie Gamzu, said if there's another lockdown, it could lead to at least another half a million Israelis uh, unemployed. And at a time where there's already 800,000 plus Israelis, maybe close to a million, unemployed or on unpaid leave, uh, another half a million to the, uh, the ranks of the unemployed will be a massive, massive uh, blow uh, to the Israeli economy and the livelihood of so many Israelis who are dependent on, on these uh, people for jobs and pay and etc. Speaking of, a lot of it comes from tourism. Can you expand a little more? You were talking about how they're voting on whether or not to let other countries in and Israelis to travel abroad. Well, Israel certainly... Um, uh, you know, makes a lot of money from tourism, as you can imagine. And we've been breaking figures every single year for many, many years. You know, more and more tourists are coming in. Our hotels generally full throughout the year. Obviously, coronavirus basically stopped that completely. There have been no tourists whatsoever, external tourists, uh, since March when they closed the borders to non-Israeli citizens. Uh, now, for the first time, they are talking about having some green countries. The problem is, even if we call a country green, uh, they may not uh, reciprocate. So someone who comes, let's say, from Greece, uh, when they go back to Greece, maybe they'll have to uh, isolate for 14 days. Uh, so it has to be a sort of reciprocal process. You know, you, even if Israel doesn't make someone who's coming in, uh, 
uh, isolate for 14 days, which is currently the case. Many countries will look at Israel's uh, morbidity rates and think, you know, these are not people that we want coming straight in and then mingling with our population. Um, and we're, I don't think we're on anyone's green list. Uh, there was talk the other day in the Knesset where the head of the coronavirus committee said there's only four countries at the moment that will allow Israelis in. I think that was uh, overstating a little bit, but certainly very few countries are uh, letting uh, Israelis in. So there's a lot of work being done as we speak. Uh, the foreign ministry is reaching out to all sorts of countries, especially in the EU. Greece, the, the Greek foreign minister is expected tomorrow. And we're trying to put a lot of pressure and lobby uh, a lot of different nations to try and uh, allow them to let Israelis in for them to come to visit Israel. But so hopefully they're talking about four o'clock tomorrow, they're going to release this list of which countries are considered green from Israel. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Ben Gurion Airport is going to be open, you know, for thousands of people again. Uh, that will take quite a while uh, to get back to those pre-coronavirus levels. Understood. So with Israel being shut down and not allowing people in, do you foresee a rise in Aliyah? And if so, how, do the, how does the country plan to have the infrastructure to absorb them? Well, there is massive, uh, there's, there's general talk about uh, an uptick in, in a surge in Aliyah, especially earlier on. There were talk of five to six, seven times the amount of inquiries for Aliyah. Why do we see still, even during coronavirus, there is still Aliyah. I, I know actually people who are making Aliyah, and the first thing they do is 14 days of isolation, uh, but people are still prepared to do it. Um, I believe that there will be a peak uh, in Aliyah in the next couple of years. They're talking about even potentially hundreds of thousands uh, of uh, Jews coming, uh, coming to, to Israel to make Aliyah. Um, so there, there's a lot of talk in the Knesset. There are certain budgets being distributed to try and entice this and also to allow for greater absorption because uh, Israel gives a, a very generous package to immigrants to Israel to absorb them, to allow them to have a, a future, uh, a secure future, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's something which has been discussed at the moment. And um, the uh, Aliyah, uh, the, immigrant, the immigrant absorption minister is certainly fighting for uh, greater budgets and she's the new one is, is pretty well liked and uh, the Jewish agency together with her are really preparing for a, a great surge in Aliyah over the next couple of years. Thank you. How has Gaza done so far with uh, regard to the COVID? Is there relative isolation? Yes, largely. There, there hasn't been that many cases, largely because there aren't so many places Gazans can go, obviously. Egypt only just reopened their border, and obviously the border with Israel is only open for exceptional circumstances, and very few people travel through it, some journalists, some aid workers, etc., etc. So as you can imagine, there are very, very few cases uh, in Gaza in the West Bank. There's a lot more. Um, and the Palestinian Authority has certainly also taken relatively draconian steps to try and stem that flow by shutting down whole villages and cities at times to try and stem that flow. Um, but again, we're not talking about massive, massive amounts, um, but according to the percentage of the population, they, they certainly still see a worry in it. And because the Israeli and the West Bank uh, population, West Bank Palestinian populations are relatively integrated, 
um, there is still that threat from either community to spread it to the other. So with the elections, do you think that Netanyahu will be making those concessions to get the budget extension passed? Well, it's actually the, the concessions are from the other side. Uh, Netanyahu is asking for the concessions. Uh, I believe he'll get some of them. Uh, one of them is that in the, according to the coalition agreement, there'll be a professional body that will choose future Supreme Court justices, or not Supreme Court, but high level uh, uh, picks in the judicial world, moving it away from a politically oriented. Uh, Netanyahu and the Likud are seeking to return to that. I think that's going to be a sticking point. Some of the other things I think they may well compromise on, but Blue and White ran on having a more professional, a, a separation between the judici uh, judiciary and the political level. Um, so to suddenly go back on that, I think that'll be probably one of the most difficult things for them to do. It just depends how much Likud are willing to give up on their side. There are a lot of commentators, uh, probably most of the commentators in Israel, who said that Netanyahu has already decided to go to elections one way or another. And it's just a matter of trying to put Blue and White into a corner so that they don't look like they're taking the blame. At the moment, the people uh, in a large majority blame Netanyahu if there will be uh, elections, I think, by two to one over Gantz at this point. Um, so it's certainly something that Netanyahu should keep in mind that, he, you know, again, according to these commentators, that he does want to go to elections but he doesn't want to be seen as the person going to election. So that's the kind of uh, the, the, the fight at the moment. All right. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again for taking the time to update us this week. On Friday at 5, 1 p.m. Eastern, we'll have Sam Westrop here discussing more trouble for Islamic relief. Uh, please be sure to join us for that. And thank you all again for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Glad you're back.